This week on Wealth Track, is the gloom surrounding fossil fuel stocks justified? We get a reality check from an industry thought leader. Petrie Partners' Tom Petrie is next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuela Mack. If you were to follow legendary investor Sir John Templeton's advice to buy where there is maximum pessimism, it might lead you to energy stocks. The energy sector has lagged the S&P 500 since 2016 and has been one of the worst, if not the worst, performing industry sector over the last year. The fossil fuel industry has been hit with an almost perfect storm of headwinds. Environmental opposition leading to widening efforts to convert from the higher carbon emission fuels, especially coal, the worst polluter, and also oil, into much cleaner burning natural gas and zero emission renewables such as wind and solar. Widespread adoption of energy conservation measures by individuals, businesses, and governments around the world. Political opposition is growing with various so-called green deals being discussed in the lead-up to the 2020 presidential election and being adopted in various forms in some European countries. Increasing supplies, largely in U.S. natural gas, due to the technological advances of fracking. Rising production of alternative energy sources. Nuclear remains a key component and is projected to be in the future, but wind and solar are growing rapidly from a much smaller base. An ongoing headwind instability among major petroleum producers outside of the U.S. Iran's asserted bombing of Saudi Arabia's oil facilities. Economic sanctions against Iran. Iraq and Libya's fragile nationhoods. And Venezuela's dissolution into a failed state are just a few examples of the challenges besetting some of the world's largest oil and gas producers. The ongoing trade wars between the U.S. and China have also started to take their toll on global economic growth, further putting downward pressure on demand for fuel. Well, what is the outlook for traditional energy producers? Are they still viable investments or are they on their way to being phased out? Well, joining us to discuss the role fossil fuels continue to play in energy production and the state of the oil and gas industry in particular is Tom Petrie a financial thought leader in the sector and chairman of Petrie Partners, a leading investment banking and consulting boutique to the oil and gas industry. Petrie is the author of Following Oil, Four Decades of Cycle Testing Experiences and What They Foretell About U.S. Energy Independence. I asked Petrie to give us an update on the role that fossil fuels are still playing in meeting global energy demand. Well, a lot of the situation that we have does involve a new menu of sources of energy. Uh, But the base load is still going to be largely fossil fuel, uh, but trending much more to the cleaner versions, uh, both oil and especially natural gas, and phasing out coal. And then longer term, uh, with the role that is expected to be played by electric vehicles, uh, there'll be a further change. But it's not going to be as quick as uh, some 
tend to believe. And the reason for that is that we have, uh, we really have a situation where we don't have, just because we're driving an electric vehicle doesn't mean we've really addressed the pollution problem. Yeah. Um, well, we still need to plug in the electric field to, to some Electricity to comes somewhere it. besides a, an outlet on the wall there. Yeah. And, and the primary sources uh, today are still a large component from coal. That's phasing Of electricity. Out, of electricity mm-hmm. yeah. and, and coming from coal. And now it really needs to be replaced by some combination of nuclear and, uh, and natural gas. The nuclear is diminishing. And, and no one is building new nuclear power plants, right? Exactly. Or, probably yeah. by, by 2030, we're probably going to be down to 60. And that's a huge baseload requirement to be replaced by something. And that yeah. something most likely is natural gas. Uh-huh. Nuclear, in general, not being looked to um, as a growing source, mm-hmm. even though it's arguable that it's the cleanest. It's cleanest, right. Uh, cleanest from a standpoint of of uh, greenhouse gases. Uh-huh. Um, but the, the other thing that gets overlooked here and is very important is the role that, that natural gas can play and has played here in the States. You know, in 1997, 98, when the Kyoto Accord was signed, uh, a whole bunch of countries in Europe and Asia signed on for that. George Bush, as president at the time, decided not to sign on. Mm-hmm the main large country in the world that is more compliant with the goals of the Kyoto Accord is the United States. Even though we were not a signatory. There right. were, were an accidental, um, it was an accidental event. Yep. Um, what happened was, we found because of the shale revolution, we started developing so much more cheap, relatively cheap natural gas that it became... The, the easy way for utilities to generate more electricity for a growing population. Mm-hmm. And that, as a result, we're now at about a 1992 level of greenhouse gas emissions, whereas most of the signatories to the Kyoto Accord are at levels that it's hard to believe, but they're at levels that uh, are anywhere from 10 to 50 percent higher than their goals. Wow. Yeah. Right. 10 to... 40 or 50 percent. Right, right. The role that renewables are going to play, because there has been a large increase from a very small base of both solar and wind power in this country uh, and in other parts of the world. And And and, they're growing rapidly. Right. And and because of scale that's being achieved in some cases, the cost of it is coming down. Mm -hmm. So those get highlighted uh, in press accounts. And that's accurate to, to say that it's, it's becoming more cost competitive and it's growing rapidly. But uh, from such a small base, the real penetration, and when, when, when you hear goals that we need to be uh, off of fossil fuels uh, within another 11 years, mm-hmm. uh, is, is misleadingly optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but, um, but I doubt it. I think I think we're talking another one, two, three decades to really fully phase out, and that that presumes a lot of breakthroughs in how we deal with it. One of the reasons I say that is that you've got two problems with wind and solar. You've got wind and solar each have a shared problem, and it's called intermittency. Right. So when the when the sun's not shining, 
when the wind's not blowing. Uh, They're not you're, producing You're not energy. generating it. Right. So you need to generate it, and you have to store it somewhere that, so you can pull it out of batteries or other forms of storage when, uh, once that's started to happen, once, once you're in the darkness and without the wind. There are pro there's progress being made on, on battery technology and so on, but it's coming slowly. Mm -hmm. There's no breakthrough that's comparable to what happened with the shale revolution. With fracking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fracking came along and in less than a decade transformed the United States. But it's yeah. still possible, Tom, because no one is expecting the fracking right revolution to be as successful, right, as it as it was at the time. I mean, that's right. And, and, and so it surprises could, could occur. So, right. But so far, the, the experts, and I'm by no means an expert in, in battery technology, but most of it is lithium-ion based. Mm -hmm. um, and if we go, if we look at the world supply of lithium uh, uh, to make batteries, uh, it's 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 not enough to meet GM's needs, much less the U.S. needs, mm -hmm. much less the global needs. Okay. It, yep. it, it, I, that may be a slight exaggeration, but it makes the point that it's a subset of the U.S. that could be met with that. Um, then we'd have to say, well, how are we going to meet it for Europe and Asia and so on? So uh, some new technology is going to be required, and, and we, we haven't seen it yet. In the meantime, the reality is that we are still very much, the world is very much a you know, fossil fuel-based dependent. That's right. And, uh, and we have seen you know, evidence of the problems that that can cause recently in that you know, OPEC, uh, which has been a source of tremendous conflict over the years and real national security problems, mm -hmm. uh, you know, economic problems, everything else, is still a player with the U.S. now the largest producer of, of oil and gas in the world, how has that changed OPEC's role and the world's dependence upon supplies from OPEC and, you know, the non-OPEC members like Russia and... Sure. The short answer is it's a work in progress. Okay. Uh, we have, we've doubled U.S. production uh, from where it was in the middle of the last decade, say 2005 or six. We were down to, in round terms, six million barrels a day. Mm -hmm. We're now running consistently over 12 and expected to reach 13 million barrels a day next year. And next to, is Russia, what, at 11? And Russia is at 11. And Saudi and Arabia? Saudi Arabia at a little under 10. All right. And they, they've been as high as 11, but probably okay. would struggle to get there right now. In fact, clearly would struggle to get there right now with what happened recently. Right. So the U.S. is, you know, that was unimaginable for the for a 30 year period all through the 70s all through the 80s and 90s unimaginable right we talked about peak oil i mean yeah, globally right. and in the us that's right. right and we thought and we really and and in the model we had it was going to be peak oil mm -hmm. and there was nothing that could change it and which means the peak production the production had peaked and it was in a decline that's that, that's right explain but the, the the essence of the shale revolution is we came up with a new model for how we would develop fossil fuels. So that's made a huge difference in the supply, number one, yep. and also as far as national security concerns. That's right. In the U.S., we are no longer going to be held hostage to what happens to OPEC. That's right. We aren't, but many other parts of the world still are, right? That's right. That's right. And, and it also creates other challenges, mm -hmm. um, even in the United States. 
Because we were so locked into the peak oil concept, $85 billion was spent to reconfigure a lot of our refineries on the Gulf Coast and on both the East and West Coast to run medium and heavy oil from the Middle East because gotcha. we thought that's where we were going to be dependent. Right. And it turns out what we're doing now is we're exporting four plus million barrels a day of oil, um, which is uh, a fairly significant amount. Right. And it's light, sweet oil that we're sending to Europe and to Asia uh, while we bring in medium and heavy oil to those to refineries. Still refine. <laughs> and, but we come out net ahead because it's a, the light, sweet oil sells at a premium. So it helps our trade balances, gives us flexibility, and, and does, to a degree, help uh, other areas that are more dependent. The problem they have is um, that the problem we have in getting it to them is uh, we really need to significantly further expand our export capability to be able to respond to the kind of challenge that occurred uh, with the uh, with the recent uh, bombing in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And we're not there yet. The infrastructure build out to get the oil from the Gulf of Mexico, the coast of Texas, to Europe and to Asia is in the early stages of being opened up. But it'll be another half decade, uh, probably the better part of another half decade to make that work. In the meantime, we recently saw um, evidence uh, where the OPEC, once again, is a major concern from not only an energy point of view, but a geopolitical point of view, yeah. with the alleged bombing by Iran, which looks pretty clear that they did do it by all yeah. intelligence indications, bombing of the Saudi oil fields. And, and you feel that, that the Saudi and Iranian confrontation, which has been ongoing for years yes, now. Yes, and it's been heating up all this year. Is it going to continue to be a major geopolitical challenge for the U.S. and the West? Why? It is. The Middle East picture is as uh, cloudy, as non-transparent as, as I've ever seen in, really? in 48 years of doing this. It really is. When it, It's complex. Clearly, uh, President Trump has shown a disinclination to stay stay any longer than necessary right. in the commitments that he inherited coming out of our past uh, involvements. So there's a real question in a lot of the accounts today, but it does mean that the more we can develop a, an effective and an environmentally effective um, development of, of fossil fuels, the better flexibility we're going to have to deal with a series of challenges. Coming. Right. And the challenges, of course, it, as I said, it's not, you know, it affects us less at this yeah. point than it did at one point. The direct effects on us are much less. But the indirect but, but the indirect effects, we shouldn't take too much comfort about that, about the, the direct effects being less when we realize we've got a shared uh, concern about right. what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Japan, what's happening in India and China. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you're saying what's happening, you mean that just the, the state of the economy, their... their, their the, the sensitivity growth. of their economies. Right. It's clear today how much uh, the tariff war, for example, is, is spotlighting that, um, that our rate of growth is to some degree coupled to the global rate mm -hmm. of growth. Absolutely. Not as much as it is for China, not mm -hmm. as much as it might be for India, but, uh, but it's not 
it's not totally disconnected. Right. And so that, that speaks to why we really have a shared uh, goal. We should have a shared goal about how this can be dealt with effectively. The other part that's, that's important is we really need to keep in mind what we're dealing with demographically. Mm-hmm. When I was born, 1945, we had uh, 2.5 billion people in the world. Uh, right at the end of World War II. So we've been systemically annihilating a lot of people in various ways. No, right. <laughs> but we've been Famine, at 2.5 billion in 1945. We're now at 7.6 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, latest dem- demographic estimates triple that. And uh, we're expected to be in the middle nine area, 9.5, 9.6 billion by 2050. Um, and a lot of that's going to occur in developing countries. The U.S. will probably not grow as rapidly as many others. Uh, China might shrink a little because it is aging, and and the one-child policy was in effect a long time, right. and they're finding it very hard to reverse it, even though they now realize mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they got a labor force problem, but much more than they thought. But but so the, the demand is, for power generation is is going to be there for energy is there it, right it really is and 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 there's still there's really still somewhere between 1.5 and 2 billion people that are living in very very impoverished conditions mm-hmm. with with aspirations for you know as, as right. somebody once said you know they find out that a small refrigerator. And a gas stove can make a huge difference, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in, including in their longevity. Uh, the, the, the number of people who die in the world today from fires cooking their food with dung or wood right. is amazing. And, and, uh, and they die just like people smoking cigarettes die. Uh, so they die at young age and so on. So there's a, there's a, there's a human need to meet this mm-hmm. that has to be addressed. And there is a climate challenge. Mm-hmm. And so balancing those all off is going to be a, a big challenge. So back to the industry that yes. you have worked in for yeah. almost 50 years. Yeah. Um, energy stocks in the U.S. are selling at deep discounts. As far as an, an investment sector, yep. and it's been a you know, very poor performer for the last couple of years, yep. especially lag the market. Yep. Uh, is there any, anything on the horizon One, a, some, that would bring it some back? Some people are extrapolating well, gee, if we've gone from nine to twelve as quickly as we have, why can't right, we go from uh, twelve to fifteen? Mm-hmm. And a very prominent person in oil—I'll um, leave him unnamed—talked about fifteen to seventeen on TV, and he's not wrong that it's theoretically possible. I think it's very unlikely it'll happen because the capital allocation process, the capital availability in our markets is not there. Right. IPOs are closed. closed the door is closed and locked right now on IPOs. And, and initial public offerings. And, new, and new offerings are not there. And some companies are over-levered, and therefore one of their priorities is to get the excess leverage down. Mm-hmm. So all of that says, uh, and, re, and the rate Specifically in the energy industry. In energy. Right, right. So there's... The, the, the Funding key is point not is there. What we've learned in the last six or seven years is that when oil gets above 70, 75, or 80, powerful self correcting forces kick in. Right. Demand diminishes and it's self correcting. When we get down 
and test 50. We've now had two points where we've tested below 50. We stay there for a relatively short time, and then we're back in the mid-50s to the low 60s. So I think we're, we're going to see, and today, uh, most of these companies are selling at 60% of their proved, developed, producing value. So when have they been that low? How many times in the past? I mean, is that Well, extreme? they've been that low on a couple of occasions in the 70s and 80s. Okay. And every time they rallied and did well. And, or, alternatively, that kicked off a big consolidation. Mm -hmm. Now, you major, think we're going to see a major consolidation in the oil and gas industry. I definitely do. And, and the reward from that comes from people. You see the consolidation. You eliminate some of the overheads. You get costs down and so on. So it's a deep value play, mm -hmm. but it only becomes realized when you, when you see the second-order consequence, which is a reduction in the number of players and a recognition that the market's going to stay skeptical in providing new funding for these players. Right, and I, I know you, and, you know you don't no longer recommend stocks. You don't you're an advisor, but I know that so the major players are companies like Exxon and Mobil and Chevron and Shell and ConocoPhillips. So those are the ones that have the financial wherewithal. They don't need to go to the markets to right. acquire other companies. And, and, or, and the interesting thing is, it really and it really is interesting. The majors were very slow to come to this. Uh, this to shale. A, the, right, the they shale. weren't involved. And, right. but, but by being patient and well-run and fully integrated uh, right, to turn it into high-value gasoline, diesel, and, and other light fuels, they are in a great position to establish something that will be part of their uh, economic uh, raison d'etre mm -hmm. uh, for the next two to three decades. Mm -hmm. So I think it will happen. It, 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 we're seeing signs of it uh, being thought about. It hasn't happened in, in size yet, but they're the ones that can do this in a way that can make a difference. Right. And, and, uh, and, and it's market therapy for those who are holding saying, well, I'm waiting for $80 oil again. And, and they'll find out that, well, your main liquidity option is going to be probably short of that, you know, meaningfully higher than it is today. Right. So, Tom, final question. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, well, the, which should we all own big, some of? Yeah, the, the, big, the big area for opportunity category of investment remains the midstream. Mm -hmm. uh, the and company, midstream being? Master Limited Partnerships mm -hmm. or other yield instruments. We've got a huge infrastructure build-out still to do. What we're doing now is new pipelines coming in across Texas to bring uh, Permian Basin oil to the Gulf Coast and then load it offshore in deep water on, on large efficient ships to go to market. Mm -hmm. These are all fundamentally instruments uh, that will throw off cash and be yield providing at a time that we have record low interest rates, uh, but these will be very competitive. So the search for yield I think is going to be is going to gravitate even more than it has already to this sector, mm -hmm. and and the and the established enterprises that are out there um, are best equipped to capitalize on it. So that category really fits. Okay, that's the, great. Midstream infrastructure and energy is is the category that I think deserves a lot of attention. We're looking at low inflation. We're looking at at the need for yield instruments 
for people thinking about the demographics of retirement. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, the stars are aligning for that, and that's what's probably going to kick off a change in this deep value proposition. Tom Petrie, thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track. As always, it's a pleasure. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is think like a contrarian and consider adding some energy exposure to your portfolio. Petrie mentioned two areas worth consideration. One is in what are known as midstream companies. Those are companies that move oil and gas from the wells to the end users. They provide the transportation, run the pipelines, refineries, and storage facilities. They also produce a lot of cash flow and pay them to investors either through dividends or income through master limited partnerships. No matter what happens to the price of oil or gas, their businesses continue to operate. The other group that Petrie mentioned were the handful of mega oil and gas companies which have the financial heft to grow in this depressed energy environment, either through acquisitions or investment in research. Petrie doesn't recommend stocks, but the majors include companies like ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, and ConocoPhillips. As we just discussed, oil and especially gas will continue to provide the world's energy needs until renewables can play a much greater role. There are some opportunities in the traditional energy sector. Well, next week, a leader in socially responsible fixed income investing, Steve Liberatore, joins us to discuss ESG and impact investing in the bond world. In this week's extra feature on WealthTrack.com, Tom Petrie shares his view on the repercussions of the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi by Saudi Arabia. We ask you to share your views with us on Facebook and Twitter and check out our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.